welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 142. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now this week, we do have another Q&A episode lined up for you. By the way, each week we generally put out a Q&A question box on our TBD Instagram profile. So if you ever do want to submit your questions, please feel free to just head over to our Instagram, click follow if you like our content, and uh, make sure to keep up with the stories to see those Instagram boxes. Or alternatively, you can always just DM us questions throughout the week. But Jack, kicking off with this first one, I think you're a good man to answer this question. It says, how can you naturally increase your testosterone levels? Great question. So many of the listeners might know that I've kind of dabbled in this myself, having gone through two comp preps and getting my testosterone tanked on both occasions. And especially this time, I kind of made more of an effort to optimize all of the aspects that go into natural testosterone production that I could optimize quite comfortably uh, without, well, to be fair, like almost all the aspects of testosterone are either genetic or lifestyle related. So they're not too hard to optimize um, depending on who you are. But I think when people ask this question, a lot of the time, I'm not saying the question asker is like this, but a lot of the time it's as if they expect, okay, take this extract of this spider venom from this type of spider and you're going to increase your testosterone by 55% or eat these three different foods but only eat 0.25 grams of them and you'll increase your testosterone something like that but in fact unsurprisingly it is it's just very very genetic and lifestyle related mm-hmm. so like if someone has high testosterone as i said it's it's a lot of it's down to who your parents are and In saying that as well, like within the normal range of testosterone, someone who let's say has 10 nanomoles per liter versus like 15, there's going to be negligible difference between those two people in terms of how much muscle they can build Mm -hmm. and how how strong they are. I guess when you're getting to the, the higher upper limits of natural testosterone, then potentially, but for the average person, like we got to remember that testosterone is only just one aspect of muscle building it's a very it is an important aspect hence like people supplement with testosterone but it's only one aspect like if if you have great genetics for testosterone but you train like a you don't train very hard (laughs) then you're not going to really be maximizing that you know jack that point actually reminds me of a post done by lane norton one of his co-workers i think that works with like his lane norton team pretty sure he's called like dr joey on instagram do you know who i'm talking about yeah. Yeah. So a few months ago, or maybe it was even a few weeks ago, he actually put out a post on how your testosterone levels won't necessarily dictate your level of muscle hypertrophy. And of course, that was clickbait because we know that testosterone does have an influence on your level of muscle hypertrophy. But what he was trying to point out in that post is that regardless of your total testosterone levels, as long as they are within a normal physiological range, your body has affinity for testosterone with the receptors all around your body. So perhaps you would have a very high affinity and sensitivity to take up testosterone in your cells, despite having lower levels in terms of the normal physiological range, Mm. but someone else could be up higher on the normal physiological range, but their receptor sensitivity could suck, right? So it all kind of balances out. And also, 
I think this is a really important point to make too in that before you just go assuming that you might have low testosterone levels, I think it's always worthwhile to get an objective measure and to actually get that proven on a blood test. Mm, Certainly, yeah, because like one of the main reasons I wanted to increase my testosterone was more so the symptoms of lower testosterone, Mm. like lower energy, lower get up and go, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I guess if it had any translation into hypertrophy and training performance i was obviously going to take it as well but last time i got mine checked it was within range now which is good Mm -hmm. still on the lower end within range but i mean there's also the argument that "Mm, maybe that's better for your longevity anyway Mm. because we know that uh maybe slightly controversial but like testosterone igf1 they both contribute to overall growth not Mm -hmm. just growth of muscle so think about the other things that you could be the stimulating growth of in your body AKA cancer. Mm -hmm. Especially in older age. Mm. So to increase your testosterone naturally, essentially what we're looking at is, uh, we'll kind of rattle off a few things here, but basically maintaining a healthy body weight, you want to get adequate sleep as well. So again, referencing those seven to nine hours per night and also low stress environment. So keep your external stresses as low as possible and that should be a goal anyway Uh, i don't think anyone wants a high stress environment and even if you do have a high stress environment that's where managing your stress is really important and then nutritionally basically want to try and prevent like any deficiencies overall but there are some nutrients that are more specific to the production of testosterone so for example zinc magnesium and vitamin d and of course exercising as well but i assume that everyone listening to this does exercise in Mm -hmm. some capacity. Yeah, weightlifting, no doubt, definitely plays a role in resistance training, plays a role in testosterone production. Mm. Yeah, but what I love there is that you focused on the big rocks because it's the big rocks that are ultimately the building blocks that are going to dictate your testosterone levels and your overall health rather than focusing on the little minutia of if you find some article on Google about this magical leaf from the Amazon rainforest and (laughs) you got to go pick it yourself and get a canoe and go out there. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, big rocks, man, rather than those little things. Mm, Most certainly. And I'm still supplementing with like vitamin D, magnesium and zinc Mm -hmm. because one on my blood test like i was actually close to the borderline of deficiency in magnesium despite suppling with it and i think that's indicative of just training in a gym which doesn't have air conditioning mm. and sweating like crazy losing a fair bit of electrolytes through that um so i try to keep everything topped up and like we also have to realize that there's a big difference between having an adequate amount of a particular nutrient versus having an optimal amount. Mm. And hence, like I'm, I'm still supplementing every single day with like 5,000 IU of vitamin D. Yeah. Because again, like the Australian dietary guidelines recommend, I think it's like a thousand IU per day, mm. which isn't particularly much. And there's no downsides associated with supplementing with a little bit more. So mm. I take that same approach, um, although not quite I don't exceed the RDI by that amount with zinc or magnesium. The thing though is with vitamin D in particular, you've got to like go to an effort to try to reach the upper limit or overdose on Mm. vitamin D. I'm pretty sure it's like well over 40,000 IU every day for days and days on end. But you know, you get adequate sunlight exposure. So potentially genetically, you actually just don't have very good vitamin D Mm. synthesis in your skin. 
Yeah, makes sense. Well, I guess most Australians are from the UK, mm-hmm. so they don't particularly. They've lived in a a darker environment than us, I guess. Their skin is quite fair, if you say. Yeah, actually, to be fair, <laughs> to, to be, pardon the pun. <laughs> I, I think fairer skinned people usually do have better uptake of vitamin D. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, are you just an anomaly? Potentially, I could be wrong though. <laughs> But that's pretty much our summary on testosterone. Uh, do you have anything else to add? No, I think it's just get a blood test, identify mm. blood what... Blood test is very helpful. So if you live in Australia, which according to our analytics, 50% of you do, mm-hmm. then make the most of those free blood tests you get in, mm-hmm. in from Medicare. Yeah, absolutely. And then just identify what are your normal levels and where are you sitting on a physiological range and then just really focus on those lifestyle factors and just staying well nourished Mm, certainly Mm -hmm. cool well let's move on to the next one okay so this one it's kind of in two parts we've had actually a few questions come through on this topic so this first one it says what does it mean to go beyond failure and then the other question was talking about is there a difference between assisted reps and forced reps so it's kind of all ties in with one another but Mm. i guess where should we start with this the difference between assisted reps and forced reps well i I think it's good to start with the fact that these are very bodybuilding coin terms Mm. like they're not really as far as i'm aware they're not proper scientific terms we didn't we didn't learn about forced reps or Mm -hmm. assisted reps at university yeah we kind of did in some respect, but not not really. And I know these terms are used frequently, especially more yeah. so in the UK rather than in Australia. That is a dis- good disclaimer that it is related to weightlifting. We're not mm. talking about what does it mean to go beyond failure on an exam. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, sorry, you flunked that class. <laughs> mm. uh, but in terms of weightlifting, so I guess in terms of assisted reps versus forced reps, I would almost say that there's quite synonymous. I think that people use those terms synonymously, but at the same time, I think that you could be assisted with your reps at a point where you're not actually reaching failure. You could still potentially be from failure, but then once you require someone to help you with forced reps, that's when you would actually be going beyond failure. Mm. That's at least the way that I think about it. Yeah, I haven't really, I just kind of view them both as synonymous, like both mm-hmm. uh, you're getting assistance with a rep. Yeah. And I would say that if I had to link one more than the other to beyond failure, then I would say it's more forced reps. Yeah. Because like assisted reps, that doesn't, you could be assisting them from rep one. Yeah, exactly my point. So what I'm, what I'm thinking of is in a pushing movement. So for example, someone's doing a shoulder press or a bench press and with every rep, they've got a spotter behind them and they're either have their hands underneath their triceps. Like, yeah, man, hardly helping you, you know, all you, Mm. (laughs) or they've got their hands underneath the bar and their, their fingertips are just on the bar the entire time. I know for me, like I am very, very picky with my spotters. Pretty sure the only people I really let spot me are like you and my dad, because <laughs> you know your random Joe in the gym, like you sure just... your dad wouldn't spot you. Oh, of course my dad would spot me. No, but I he's mean like, he, he wouldn't assist you. Hell no, I'm not unless I was failing because he like you need a gold standard spotter, man. Like you need someone who's there to they're for just they're just there for support right and they can have their fingertips right underneath that bar but god do not touch my bar you know like do, <laughs> don't even lay a fingertip on it because 
I still term that as assisting. And I'm like, no, that I, I didn't get that. That wasn't all me. So yeah, if you're spotting someone, I would highly suggest just keep your fingertips physically away from them. Do not touch them. You can be hovering right below, but unless they like screech out for help or that bar or those dumbbells are actually going down toward them, that's when you can then assist them. Mm. Yeah, so in terms of what was the first part of the question again? <laughs> what does it mean to go beyond failure? Okay, well, I think, I think we can interpret that as getting assisted reps or forced reps mm. once you reach failure. Yeah. So once you have done as many reps as you can and gone to failure yourself, then you'll get assistance to try and complete more reps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And ultimately, what would be the benefit in that? Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular content on our Instagram and YouTube channel. You can find those platforms by searching the bodybuilding dietitians. See you there. Well, it's a good question. I think it would allow you to continue the set. Mm -hmm. And I guess you would accomplish more volume at a very high intensity. You would potentially, like if we look at the triangle of hypertrophy, like there's muscle damage, metabolic stress mm. and mechanical tension. Yeah. And I guess doing additional reps is kind of targeting all three of those. But I think in particular muscle damage, because mm. we know that we experience the most muscle damage in the eccentric portion of the lift. And I actually remember learning about this in one of our first ex-phys classes. The title on the slide was like, how to get huge. <laughs> and they actually talked about doing eccentric portions of the rep with a spotter. So for example, they suggested that if you want to get stronger at your bench, you could almost purposefully lift a weight heavier than you know that you could push up concentrically, but just to have that weight in your hands and to actually be able to control it with the eccentric portion down to your chest and then get a spotter to assist you on the way back up. They recommended that if you wanted to induce more muscle damage, get a feel for what it's like to actually hold that weight it's, you could potentially do that, but I'm, I never program anyone mm. assisted reps or forced reps because it's so hard to standardize. Mm. That's probably the main difficult aspect. You're not always going to have the same spotter. You're not always going to have the same workout partner. And like, I guess there is an element of, of danger to it, I guess, mm. for like free weight based exercises. And because you and I are usually advocating for like leaving at least one to three reps left in the tank. You know, you shouldn't be going to failure on every single one of your sets. But now we're talking about, okay, take it on the other end of the extreme and let's go past failure. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's, yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't have too much else to say. Like it's, it's a technique that I know a lot of people use. And mm -hmm. so I'm not going to like discredit it because it probably, as I just said, we think it can increase those other aspects of hypertrophy. So mm -hmm. like, Sure, it might have some benefit, um, but I also don't know enough about the in-depth science behind hypertrophy and, and muscle gain to really mm. comment too much more. But I think it has its place. Do either of us do it? No. Do no. we think it's necessary? No. Does it make standardizing your progression a bit harder, potentially? Because like, at what point do you, do you increase? Do you do like your normal set plus you have to do three forced reps, otherwise you can't mm. move up and load. Like. And also, how do you standardize how much they're helping you in the assistance? You know, are those fingertips just on the bar, just helping you push that bench back up? Or are they actually grabbing it and are they bicep curling it up? Like, how do you standardize how much the spotter's helping out? Mm. 
yeah, it's tough stuff. But I know that I see this a bit on social media and I would say it's more toward the assisted reps. Like someone is assisting someone from the very beginning of the set. They're not helping them go beyond failure and doing forced reps at the very end. But I almost want to like jump in the screen and be like, back off. <laughs> and like slap the spotter out of the way. Like get your hands off them, you know, like let them do their own shoulder press. They don't, they don't need your assistance on their elbows from rep one. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I definitely don't see it as much as I used to. I remember training at UQ gym, uh, whenever someone was doing a bench press, you could pretty much guarantee that the spotter was holding the bar, but mm. no, nowhere near as much at well gym Brisbane. Yeah. And that's why I say like, I would almost rather risk failing on a set on my own and having to do that like disgraceful roll of shame, roll of shame with the barbell sort of thing. Or like, then it's on my chest and I'm like, Hey, (laughs) anyone there? Can you help me out? Because I've had bad experiences where I've asked someone to spot me during a bench and they've just stolen my set from me. So yeah, I really only trust you and my dad and hopefully maybe another really good old T- TV folk out there if they ever want to mm. <laughs> help us spot us, but not assist us. <laughs> All right, guys. So this next question, this says weight fluctuation after an untracked meal out that does not go back down. <laughs> so that's the thing with weight fluctuations. Like if the weight fluctuation doesn't go back down, it's no longer a weight fluctuation. Uh, it's a weight spike, my friend, unfortunately. <laughs> and I think recently we posted something on our Instagram. Like we did a little infographic for weight fluctuations, take the average across the week, all that kind of stuff. So one thing that we didn't necessarily flesh out too much in the caption was that diagram there was assuming you're at energy maintenance. Mm. So even at energy maintenance, there are going to be fairly significant weight fluctuations. However, if you're in a calorie surplus, like you're still going to have weight fluctuations, but the trend over time across the weekly average is going to go up. So without knowing anything more about the question asker, if your weight fluctuation has come up and then hasn't come back down across the average, then you've just gained weight. Yeah. Simple, it's as, simple as that. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's not negative. It's not positive either. It completely depends on what your goal is. Like it's, we and that the whole point of that post was to look at weight and weighing yourself really objectively mm. and that's what and all of our clients that weigh themselves um not all of them do but most of them do like we really encourage objectivity in weighing yourself mm. and knowing exactly why that variable on the scale has changed because at the end of the day like the scale is just one variable among many mm-hmm. um and I mean, for people who are natural, like a lot of people say the scale is a bad measure of... F the scale. <laughs> How many social media posts have we seen on that? <laughs> but ultimately, I, I think both of us would argue that the scale is a very useful measure of body composition change. Mm-hmm. Because the reality is that people who are natural, their, their rate of muscle gain is not going to exceed their rate of fat loss mm. or fat gain. Like the reality is it's easier to lose fat than it is to gain muscle and it's easier to put on fat than it is to gain mm-hmm. muscle as well. So people who were saying, oh, the your, your rate of muscle gain kind of, that's why you increased on the scale and it's not because of the body fat you put mm-hmm. on. Like it's important to be objective, um, that which is what we promote. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's definitely is wishful thinking to be like, oh, you know, maybe that extra kilogram overnight, pure lean mass all on my chest or something mm-hmm. like that. But I just encourage people to just have a healthy relationship with the scale. Like Mm. literally 
I really encourage people to get into the habit of weighing themselves each morning so that you can take that weekly average. And then, so you just understand what's going on. And so, Mm. like you said, you can track those sort of trends because some people, you know, they are under the impression that, oh, to have a healthy relationship with the scale means to not weigh yourself every single day. But if you just weigh yourself once per week, but the day before just wasn't a very representative day sort of thing. Either you had a difference in food volume, it could be more, it could be less. You could have gone to the bathroom more or less. You could have done more exercise or less, whatever it may be. The scale weight the next morning might not be truly reflective of what's actually going on across the entire week. So if you're working with someone and they're only tracking their scale weight once per week, and sometimes it's on a Friday, sometimes it's on a Monday, those numbers can fluctuate. And then they're like, oh God, I've gained weight. Or, oh God, I've lost weight. And it's like, we don't really know because mm. we don't know what happened between these days. Mm. There is a there's a dietitian who we follow on TBD called uh, Jono. And he has a saying, which I guess I've copied from him now, but it's basically either weigh yourself daily or every month. There's no <laughs> in between. And I kind of do agree with that because weighing yourself daily allows you to get the average. But... If you weigh yourself weekly, exactly what will happen, like mm. as you just said. Whereas weighing yourself monthly, monthly there's enough time in between there to account for any yeah. inaccuracy. Yeah, you can't be in denial. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I guess that kind of answers that question in mm-hmm. regards to weight gain or loss. Mm-hmm. and But also use this to your advantage. So let's say that your scale weight did go up after a night of indulging and then it hasn't come back down. And let's say that's not necessarily in line with your goals use that knowledge to your advantage so that you can pre-plan for the next week moving forward. Because especially around this time, right? Like Christmas is only a few days away. So we all have social events going on here or there. So perhaps that you just need to better estimate for those types of social events, whatever your goals may be. So I just say, look at it on the bright side and just see it as a learning lesson and just, yeah, prepare yourself better for the next time. Because these things are always gonna happen. Mm. Yeah, they are. Indeed. So Jack, moving on to this next question, it says, is there a best time of day to consume fish oils? Not really. Well, there is and there isn't. It's a two-part answer kind Mm. of. So there aren't many nutrients I can think of where you should consume them based on the time of day. Like the only one I can really think of is vitamin D where you don't really want to take that in the evening because it might be related to your melatonin production. Mm. And the other one I can think of would be iron if you're consuming an iron supplement and you want to take that on a fasted stomach Mm -hmm. and for most people that generally works out to be first thing in the morning Mm. hey guys just a reminder that we don't just coach physique athletes but we do coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal therefore if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services you can always head over to our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com or alternatively Click the link in the show notes below. And I guess a stimulant like caffeine, if you mm. consider that a nutrient. Yeah, not too <laughs> close to your bedtime, please. <laughs> yeah. But with fish oils, it's more about what you consume it with rather than what time. So we both consume our fish oil capsules in the evening, and that's more of a habit out of anything else. And the reason why we take fish oils, a lot of people don't realize that like omega-3 is an essential nutrient. It's an essential fatty acid, which means that our body can't produce omega-3 or enough omega-3 through our own devices. So Mm. we need to supplement with it. And 
if you don't obtain enough omega-3 through the diet, which to be honest, probably more than 90% of people don't, I would mm. say, because even if you consume a lot of oily fish, if it's farmed, then it's unlikely to be that high in omega-3 mm. unless they've fortified it. So most people should be supplementing with omega-3, in my opinion. Yeah, and having that come from a high-quality fish oil or mm. an algae oil, because even consuming plant-based sources of omega-3, like chia seeds and walnuts, the conversion rate of the ALA to the EPA and DHA just isn't very good. Mm. So. It's kind of like creatine, where like you can get some creatine in your diet, but it's nowhere near enough that you need to really optimize your creatine levels. Yeah, or you just got to consume kilograms upon kilograms of meat. Mm. But yeah, back to these fish oils. Is there a best time of day to consume them? Not a best time of day, but again, consuming it with some other dietary fat sources to maximize absorption of the fish oils. And also consuming it with food in general will inhibit uh, some gastric reflux, especially nobody likes having that reflux or the, the fishy aftertaste. Mm. Uh, um, and like they even, I know that they often make the capsules like lemon scented now to, to help prevent that. Oh man, I actually worked with this girl once and unfortunately her one of the fish oil capsules burst in the entire big tub of fish oils and you know our tubs they come with like 400 tablets so let's say that one burst the oil gets all over the other ones they're still viable to eat but they just stink and mm. reek yeah and she said it was very very unpleasant but she was committed she still had the fish oils pretty sure <laughs> commitment right there yeah man but uh, yeah, I've I've personally never experienced like the reflux from mm. a fish oil. I back in high school and I used to consume them. I used to consume them first thing in the morning before I'd actually eaten anything, and I never actually experienced that. I think it's yeah, people who are probably more prone to gourd mm. or gourd or something else. Yeah, but having fish oil burps probably isn't the nicest thing, is it? Mm. It's probably worse than garlic breath, I would say. Mm. I know for me, I just purposely consume them at nighttime just because my dinner at night is quite low in fat. Like I usually just have some kangaroo mince, either stir fried with some vegetables or a salad on the side. And I don't usually add additional dietary fat to that meal. So consuming my fish oils at that time is just helpful so that I have a bit more dietary fat in that meal. And it helps me absorb the fat soluble nutrients in my vegetables. Nice. That's smart. Yes. <laughs> Put some intelligence behind that pill, brother. <laughs> yeah, there's not too much else to say on in the terms of fish oils. Mm. Hopefully we've convinced some people to start supplementing with them though. Yeah. I think they are a lot of people supplement with them just because they sort of like a multivitamin, although we don't we have different opinions about the multivitamin, but People think, oh, it's a fish oil. I see that at the chemist. I see other people having it. Let's supplement with it. Which, mm -hmm. in the case of fish oils, it, it does more. It does only good. It doesn't mm -hmm. really do you any harm. I've got a question for you. What's your take on tracking fish oils? I don't think I've ever said someone to track fish oils. Mm. Because like, if they stay consistent with it, even in a prep, like it, it's consistent. Like, yeah. yeah. But even though we know that you are quite pedantic and like to hit things to the gram... Because like, that's what I think, that fish oils per gram, it's nine calories. And if you're mm. taking... Well, I actually take three 1.5s. So like mm -hmm. I take four and a half grams of dietary fat through fish oils. Yeah, so you're getting almost 40 calories there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then I guess it's insignificant. 
Yeah, but personally, I get people to track them, especially if someone's on like a lower fat intake. Like let's say someone's in a pretty aggressive dieting phase and they're on like 40 grams of fat, maybe sometimes 35 grams of fat, and that margin of error is smaller. I think it's just reasonable to ask people, hey. I don't think, technically it doesn't make a difference because if they were consuming the fish oils before the dieting phase and not tracking them, then when they enter the dieting phase, you're still decreasing calories by the same amount and they're going to still continue taking them. Yeah, but why not account for everything that you eat? Because like living life on the edge. (laughs) To track a fish oil or to not track a fish oil? Personally, I just like to take account of everything. I just Mm. think it makes sense, especially if the margin of error is smaller. If If we're asking a client that's in a comp prep, hey, I want you to hit your fat macros within plus or minus one or two grams, those two grams could be a fish oil. Did you track your fish oils in prep? Yeah, I still track them. Until the day I die, brother. Or the day I stop eating fish oils. Scan that barcode. I've never seen them on your my fitness pal. Well, maybe you need to do some more snooping. They're right there next to the kangaroo. <laughs> anyway, all right. That's enough for this episode. But one thing that we learned this week. Jack, what did you learn? What did you learn, Tiara? Oh, so... You're going first. Okay. Uh, Something that I learned this week was a little bit of a YouTube hack because when podcasters don't release their podcasts either on the podcast networks and they only release them on YouTube and I still want to listen or they release them early on YouTube first before they release them on the podcast network, I end up listening to podcasts on YouTube. But it's been really irritating because if I want to go on a walk in the morning, I've got to listen to a podcast on YouTube, but I've got to have my screen open the entire time. So either my screen gets really hot because you can't turn off the screen and make it black, otherwise it just stops the video completely, or you just have to really turn down the brightness. Either way, I found out a little hack. So what I can actually do is this past week, I texted the link from the YouTube podcast to you, and then I opened up that in our text messages, and it would play the YouTube video or the podcast there and I was still able to turn off my screen and then keep pressing play and then it would actually play the audio and I didn't have to have the video running. That's good. Yeah. I didn't know that. Dude, best hack ever. Save my phone battery. Yeah, don't get my phone super duper hot. So I uh, found a hack in the system there. Sorry, Revive Stronger. But <laughs> but Jack, what did you learn this week? So I didn't really learn it recently, but... Um, out of other things to say, unfortunately. So this is also related to technology, but something I've been using a lot in the gym is basically with the new iPhone update, you can go to your camera, go to the just the standard camera and hold down the camera button and then swipe it to the right and it'll turn into video mode and it will enable you to listen to music still while you're filming yourself in the gym. Man, dude, when you discovered that and showed me, it changed my flipping life. Mm. I actually learned it from Max Tuning in a YouTube video, I think. It's amazing. And if you guys don't know that hack yet, please go onto your camera, hold down the button, swipe to the right, keep listening to your favorite beats while you go and kill the set. Because I used to have to download like different apps in order to listen to music and film myself at the same time. Like Monster Media, that was one. But Monster Media, then it would like flip the screen around. So it would mirror it, which was not an issue, but I guess I got to see what I looked like from the other side. But then also on Instagram, I used, you could do that, but it only films you for a minute long and then it chops it into those 15 second segments. Yeah. So yeah, absolute freaking game changer. Mm. The only issue with this one though, is that it creates a, it, 
only makes it as big as the camera. Mm. So that means usually when you take a video, the screen gets a little bit bigger. So then when you try and put it on Instagram, it has to zoom in a little bit to take up the full mm. screen. So just think ahead and just when you film, just have the camera a little bit further back. Wow. Yes. That's smart. Thank you very much. I've had some practice. But yeah, guys, let us know if you've tried that trick. But thank you very much for tuning into this episode. If you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD, and we'll catch you next week.